What you're about to experience is one man's quest to see beyond the tumultuous period we're in and to envision what lies just beyond our grasp, yet well within our reach. Welcome to Larry Rifkin's America Trends, where the future has arrived, and it's just in time. Welcome back to America Trends. I'm Larry Rifkin. Trending today, and for some time now, has been the issue of the mental health of Americans, whether it's the pressure of our go-go society, the after-effects of the pandemic, the 24-hour news cycle, or the frenetic pace of the posts on social media and all the technology surrounding us. It feels as if we are careening out of control and on the verge of a collective nervous breakdown. The one good thing is we are willing to share our fears and insecurities more than in the past. And when we do, we get more support. Let's put our mental health back in the spotlight once again here on America Trends. With us on America Trends is Chuck Ingolia. And he's been with us before, but never has this topic been more important in my mind. He is the president and the CEO of the National Council for Mental Well-Being. That's nationalcouncil.org. And we hear so much more today about mental health. Now, I don't know, Chuck, whether it's because of the pandemic and all of us sharing these vulnerabilities as a public uh, health concern, the political unrest, uh, whether it's the economic problems that people uh, see in their lives. But it does seem to me that the prominence of this issue is just so much greater, so much more heightened than it's been in the past. Am I right? You're absolutely right. I think the answer to the question you just asked, right, is all of the above, right? All of those factors have contributed to the situation we find ourselves in right now as a country, but as a world. And, you know, I'm struck by reflecting a lot about, you know, kind of our field. And uh, there's an agency at the federal government level called SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And for years, their tagline has been that mental illness and substance use disorders are real, that they're common, and they're treatable. But I don't think, Larry, until the last few years have most Americans believed it. But I hear time and time again now as I talk to people all over the country that that for the first time, they really understand how important it is to pay attention to mental illness and substance use and uh, to pay attention to it and to seek treatment when they need to. And I know that Congress and the president have been paying attention. They say that you can tell someone's real intent through the budget. The recent omnibus bill that passed uh, here in the United States, lots of pages, lots of uh, density. What about mental health in that regard? Yeah, I would say this entire Congress uh, has just proven to be remarkable. I mean, I've lived in Washington for a long time, Larry, and I've done this kind of work for a long time. I talk to people who've been in this field, and the the word that everyone keeps coming up with is unprecedented. You know, even before we talk about the bill, let's talk about that 
In this last Congress, this 117th Congress, there were more hearings on issues related to mental health and substance use in this one two-year Congress than there had been the last 14 years in Washington. Mm. Just the amount of scrutiny and, and input that met lawmakers sought. Uh, then we had historic investments in the earlier this year in the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. And then, as you point out, we had this omnibus bill, which not just invests significant dollars, which it does, but also makes some really important policy changes to make it easier for people to seek mental health and substance use treatment. I think the only word that I can come up with, sir, is unprecedented. It must be that uh, constituents are telling lawmakers that they are fragile, they are vulnerable at this moment in time, and we are sharing. That's something I've noticed uh, very openly, that people are now not afraid to say, I'm having trouble. I mean, let me give you an example. I just read where Shaquille O'Neal, who everybody sees on commercials, on his uh, NBA uh, broadcasts, he's a real personality in America, and he openly said recently that he cannot sleep. And in part, that's because of the death of his sister, the death of Kobe Bryant, and he now has trouble falling asleep until 5 Mm a.m. And I know that sleeplessness Mm -hmm. is something that contributes, and most Americans will admit to that. You know, it's interesting, Larry. During the pandemic, I I had I was uh, got an email from the CEO of a a major media company who wanted to talk. And you know, being the cynic that I am, I, I assume that they were trying to sell me more ad space, you know, in, in their in their newspaper. But the CEO of this ma- major media company wanted to talk to me because he was curious about what was happening around the country related to mental health treatment and what was the state of health of the organizations that serve people who have mental health and substance use. And this was brought on because people that he knew in his family, his neighbors, were he was noticing increased, you know, kind of uh, signs of mental distress, people talking about it, and that's what led him to reach out. And, and I thought that was a really interesting moment where this was not just some academic pursuit, but people were really feeling this Uh, as real and important in ways that had not happened previously. Oh, it's absolutely remarkable. And I think that's the first step of people acknowledging that there's something that I'm dealing with here that perhaps is beyond my pay grade and I need some help. Having said that, the reason that I reached out to you, because we've had Chuck on before and others from his great organization, is that I read a piece in the Wall Street Journal recently, Some Americans Skip therapy to save money. More counselors now won't accept Medicare or private insurance plans. Tell us, during the pandemic, there was a lot of uh, telemedicine going on, even in the mental health space, and then we saw online services that had developed, and now people are trying to get back and see a psychiatrist, a therapist, a counselor, and they're having difficulties. Number one, they're very busy, but number two, there's lots related to the cost uh, that is really wrapped up in the concerns that people have about really being able to go for the help they really need. Yeah, Larry, so I'd say there's a couple different things that maybe I want to mention. First, in this country, I, I think, unfortunately, if you're middle class, your opportunity to seek 
uh, and receive mental health and substance use treatment are really compromised. You know, we have a program designed for, for low-income people called Medicaid that offers low reimbursement rates, but there are lots of organizations like the ones who belong to my uh, association who really are dedicated to serving that population. People with means can pay out of pocket cash, uh, and I think a lot of therapists and psychiatrists know that, and, and they choose not to actively participate in insurance networks uh, because they can they don't have to deal with the hassle. Now, sometimes depending on the kind of coverage that you have, you can get care and then get reimbursed for an out-of-network provider, but not everybody has that luxury, and I do think this is something really serious. Now, we just a second ago, we talked about this omnibus bill that Congress just passed, and there were some things in, in that bill that I think pertain to this conversation. One, over 10 years ago, Congress passed a bill saying that mental health and substance use benefits should be treated just like medical surgical benefits by insurance companies. And finally, there are some provisions in this omnibus bill that provide more oversight to health plans, specifically looking at the network adequacy. Are there enough professionals in your network to actually provide care? So I think that's going to be really important for people who are commercially insured. The other provision that was in this omnibus bill that will, will directly benefit this is uh, for the first time, licensed professional counselors and marriage and family therapists will be able to bill Medicare for the provision of individual therapy. And that has been something that has not been possible until now, uh, and that has really curtailed access for Medicare beneficiaries. So hopefully there are some things on the horizon, Larry, that really will get at some of those issues uh, that you pointed out. You know, the Gallup organization, very well respected, finally did something about mental health. I don't think they had done something in many, many years about this topic. And let me bottom line what they said. They said, while majorities of Americans continue to rate their mental and physical health as excellent or good, the percentages saying each is excellent are the lowest on record. Mental health ratings remain lower than their pre-pandemic levels, while physical health ratings have been less affected by the pandemic at a time when Americans self-report of mental health being their worst in over two decades. More U.S. adults, particularly those who are younger, are seeking help. Now, number one, if Americans say their physical health is good, <laughs> They're not being uh, accurate reporters. Uh, I, I, I do it with my eye test. Uh, I don't think a lot of people are in great shape. But having said that, with mental health, as much as younger people seemingly are less uh, afraid to reach out or to share their concerns, and maybe it's in part because they have even growing and greater concerns thanks to social media, and I'd love your commentary on that, but the point being that we see them as some of the most distressed as it relates to their own mental health by virtue of the ideation of suicide, the actual attempts at suicide. We're all reading about this, and it is frightening what's going on. Yeah, you know, wow, what a complex question. I, you know, I think back to my own adolescence, right, and how troubling adolescence is in general, right? You're dealing with all of these complex feelings and emotions mm. and, 
and trying to separate, you know, figure out, you know, what it means to be independent and all of those things. And, you know, gosh, I mean, so many of us experienced bullying at school. But when I left school, I was away from that. But I noticed even with my own children, they don't ever really leave school, right? They're on all these group chats and they're looking at their social media constantly. And, you know, they really get no break from all of that. And, you know, there are some provisions that Congress has passed to take a look at this. There's a new technical assistance center that SAMHSA is standing up related to social media use and mental health and some new investments and in research in this area. But I do think this is an, uh, this will be a place that we need to continue to try to understand what are the implications of social media for young people and how can parents have conversations with their children about what's going on. I know this is something as a parent I I don't know that I'm good at, but I know it's something that's really important. Now, some people I'm reading are now seeking health resources outside of traditional therapy. Um, of course, we have a lot of self-help books. We have podcasts, and we do a lot on mental health on America Trends, uh, apps to use. What do you think of these new resources? If you think back to the topic we had a while ago, Larry, which is there are not enough therapists, we, we do have to think creatively about how we can you know, provide support to people. And certainly I think that different tools, online therapies, uh, other kinds of things can be a good adjunct, right, can be a good complement to treatment. I don't know if it's always going to be a substitute. I know as an employer we have made the Calm app available to all of our employees, and I try to use it mm. when I can, you know. Uh, and listen, you know, I, I I I don't know that we know for sure that these things are going to solve all of our problems, but people need different kinds of things to be centered and to and to be uh, present and aware. And you know, I think probably no harm in trying some of these things. When we talk about young people, I just read another study that came out yesterday uh, that emergency department visits and revisits in children's hospitals that are related to mental health are increasing rapidly and not so really with physical. Between 2015 and 2020, mental health visits in pediatric emergency departments increased by about 8% annually with about 13% of those patients revisiting within six months. So uh, this gets to the question, when somebody knows they have a need, and yet the resources related to that may not be as uh, readily available, lots of people on waiting lists I'm I'm reading. I mean, what do you do? What do you say to someone who really has an immediate need but not an immediate ability to get it? Yeah, well, that's that's especially where some of these uh, these new tools might come into place. I know just uh, uh, right before the holiday, I had a conversation with with a company that is providing online intensive treatment for young people, and and I was particularly intrigued. You know, just thinking about this this issue, right? That there are lots of young people showing up at emergency rooms and no place for them to go, and and so just trying to think about could something like an intensive online uh, treatment experience be helpful. And it's certainly the case, Larry, we do as a country need to examine the resources that we are providing for the treatment of young people and make some you know, make some better investments. 
Uh, there are no no place in this country that I know that there is adequate availability of community-based services for adolescents, and uh, there's no reason for that to be the case. And we talked earlier a bit about social media. I referenced it. You talked about your children always online and such. And it is such an important issue. And there's been a lot written about it. But, you know, when you think about it, when you and I perhaps were younger, we maybe compared ourselves to two or three people who we idolized and thought, oh, boy, I I really don't measure up. But we're talking about kids now seeing things from somebody else's perspective online all the time. I mean, that is such a load to carry. (laughs) I I just can't even uh, imagine it. I struggle with this all the time. And uh, the notion that is true, right, is that comparisons uh, aren't ever helpful, right, because we're all individual people. But so much is in our face right now, social media uh, about, you know, the the kinds of things that we should have or how we should look, et cetera. I'm very concerned about that uh, myself. Now, let me ask you, the most common diagnoses among the mental health emergency department visits that we were talking about was societal ideation or self-harm. That was 28.7% of the patients. Mood disorders, 23.5%. Anxiety disorders at 10.4 and disruptive or impulse control disorders at 9.7%. Those are very different. Uh, certainly the gravity of certain of them are so great. The one that comes to mind being the self-harm at almost 30%. I mean, how do we grade those things Mm. as we're looking for help and what kinds of different help is needed depending upon what the issue is? It's a really big question and and certainly in in our society, anytime there is a mention of potential suicide or self-harm, the automatic response is uh, emergency room or potentially inpatient treatment and we need to have a better way of triaging and assessing level, actual level of risk uh, so that those resources can be available for people who actually uh, need them. Uh, again, though, in, until we have more capacity for screening, I, 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 I wouldn't want to dissuade anyone from going to the emergency room under those circumstances. But I do think as a country, we need to be looking at how do we have accessible community-based services uh, so that people can go? Like, you know, uh, some parts of the country, right, there are psychiatric emergency rooms now. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that, that kind of model where you know there's somewhere you can go where you can get adequate assessment of the situation, stabilization, and potentially access to treatment. Uh, so that, that's the kind of a, a goal that we should have in mind. It seems to me that when we had institutions that were for those who really uh, had, um, you know, mental health issues, um, that was, of course, torn down and we've kind of gone to more community-based approaches. But I think we fell away, and you've got to help me, you understand this so much better than I do, but that we didn't really put those structures in place. We talked about 
the value of having people back in the community and not locked away, if you will. But we never really, I don't think, uh, mm. got to that in a serious uh, kind of structural <laughs> way, did we? This is our way back machine, right? <laughs> you know, 1960s, the Congress created a uh, uh, a notion of a community mental health center and had a vision at that point of building about 2,000 of such centers around the country. By the 1980s, we were up to about 875 of those. And then during Ronald Reagan's presidency, that federal program was abolished. And control for and responsibility for mental health services was turned over to the states. And states really approached that in very different ways. But again, this Congress earlier this year through the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act has put a stake in the ground that we do need federal direction and uh, federal standards for the treatment of mental health conditions through what Congress calls certified community behavioral health clinics. Senator Stabenow of Michigan and Roy Blunt of Missouri uh, have led this effort for many, many years saying that all people should have access to affordable, high-quality mental health and substance use care uh, in their community. And uh, as a result of this action by Congress over these next 10 years, every state will have the opportunity to bring certified community behavioral health clinics to their state, and hopefully those will be available everywhere across their state. And let me, let me just say one thing real quick. What gets me most excited about these clinics is that they have to serve everyone, regardless of your age, your diagnosis, your insurance coverage, your ability to pay. They have to serve you rapidly and offer you comprehensive care. And I meant that notion that I had earlier of a psychiatric emergency room, that's closer to the vision of the kinds of services these organizations will provide. And don't we all need this, right? We need to know where we can go when we're having a problem. I can't tell you there's not a week that goes by, Larry, where I don't get a phone call, a text, or an email from somebody that I know across the country who's looking for mental health or substance use care for a friend or for a family member. And that shouldn't be how we find care in this country, right? We should all have a sense in our own communities where we can go if we need care. By the way, that issue of uh, patients with substance use disorders uh, they were less likely to return to the emergency department, and yet we hear a lot about fentanyl because it's uh, used as part of the um, way to dramatize what's going on on the border. But uh, there's a lot of fentanyl coming in from ports of entry. Uh, there's a lot in our own country. It's rather easy to make because it is synthetic. And that whole issue, of course, underscores that those who find themselves, um, you know, suffering in this way, uh, obviously, you know, are in pain. And often that pain at the root is uh, something related to something that's happened in their life and their own mental health. Mm -hmm. How do you tie together the substance abuse issues that are getting much more prominence now uh, after the opioids, now the fentanyl and meth? How do, how do you tie that together? Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, you know, I, I think for a long time in this country, people in the field really tried to separate 
substance use and mental health, you know, were you having a mental health problem or a substance use problem? But one of the things I have noticed uh, over the last few years is that more and more organizations that have historically thought of themselves only as treating substance use disorders begun to increase their kind of capacity to screen for and treat comorbid mental health issues. That's because that's what they were noticing Mm -hmm. uh, in people who were coming for treatment. So I think, I think, Larry, we might be at a tipping point where this idea that providing integrated care for mental health and substance use becoming more of the expectation as opposed to the exception. You know, research has shown for over 20 years that this is the way care should be provided. I think it's finally starting to happen. And gosh, you know, you talk about fentanyl and the the uh, unprecedented crisis that it's creating across the country. I think it's at fentanyl also is going to require us to really think differently about how we approach care. Certainly, the FDA's most recent actions to encourage drug makers to uh, make naloxone available over-the-counter, some issues, some approaches that we're seeing in New York and Rhode Island and other places around supervised or or opioid overdose prevention centers for being able to provide care rapidly to people who are using drugs. Uh, is this going to require us to think differently because it's so, so deadly? Let me take another issue that's uh, much in the news and try to tie it together to the mental health issues that we as Americans clearly are facing, and that is with the unhoused. They've really dealt primarily with putting a roof over people's heads, and yet I had a guest on recently who said that's not the uh, bevy of services alone that are needed. You need to deal with the underlying reason as to why somebody may be out on the streets, and that can be tied together to substance abuse and to mental health uh, issues. Uh, how do you see the homeless crisis uh, in relation to the issues we're dealing with? You know, we we have a, a crisis, an affordability crisis in this country. Right, housing is is just very very expensive for people who have a mental health or a substance use challenge. That can make holding a job certainly more complicated. Now, I'm a big fan of the housing first model, which says first thing you do is get people off the street and into a safe place to live. But absolutely, I agree also with the notion that you're uh, uh, saying here, which is that that should be coupled with supportive interventions, whether that be a mental health or a substance use intervention, case management, other kinds of things to help that person be successful uh, in that new housing arrangement. But certainly, you know, it, it is certainly hard to get mentally well or to be sober if you're unhoused. So, you know, being, mm-hmm. you know, in safe environment is really, really important. But certainly we need to have that coupled with appropriate uh, support services. We have just a few more things. I mean, you've touched on so many things during this conversation. As have you, Larry. (laughs) Well, I'm really wondering about this uh, new mental health uh, hotline, uh, 988. Do we have any numbers? Are are people using it? Are they they then being led to the appropriate places for care? What are you learning from that? You know, Larry, you know, 988 is a, is a new national number for anybody experiencing a mental health or substance use challenge, but it builds on an existing system, right? There has been an existing 
suicide hotline available across this country for the last 20 years. 988 is uh, those three digits are just now the new way to access that. And so we have some historical numbers, right, about the what has been the rate of calls to to the to the that that lifeline uh, crisis system, and how has that changed since 988 has happened? Uh, there was a huge spike right after 988 went live over the summer, uh, about a hundred percent increase in the number of calls. Uh, what I understand, looking at some of the data recently, is uh, not it's not quite that high anymore, but it is certainly elevated. There are more people calling 988 uh, to. Uh, get care. Now, the good news is that there are trained counselors on the under end of that phone. And for the vast majority of people who call, their issues can be resolved in that phone call. They don't require further intervention. Logically, you're going to ask them, you know, how many people get referred on? You know, right now, the there's a lot of variability around the country depending on, you know, can that 988 center connect people to mobile crisis or other kinds of interventions. Uh, there's a lot of variability there. But one of the issues that's come up a lot, which I think is worth talking about, is there is this fear that if you call 988, police will be sent or that somehow there will be some other kind of response against your will. You know, that doesn't usually happen. Uh, a, the, the 988 does not have geolocation, so unless you tell them what your location mm-hmm. is, they have no way of knowing what, what your location is. But B, you know, what, what they're going to be most concerned about, right, uh, something we talked about earlier in relation to young people, if the caller says that they're going to hurt themselves, that they're going to commit suicide or otherwise harm themselves, then that operator is going to work really hard to find out what your location is and to have somebody respond. But that's really, that's really when, when that's going to happen. Okay, again, that number is 988. Chuck, Ingolia has been with us, the president and CEO of the National Council for Mental Well-Being. I said when we first uh, spoke that that program that you guys are so instrumental in, the mental health first aid, uh, where we get to understand what we're seeing among friends and family and have better responses uh, to people who are in some crisis uh, is so valuable. And if you just want to tell people what they might be able to do if they want to help someone else or if they need help themselves, uh, just to leave on a very self-help note <laughs> what it is that uh, people might be thinking about when they contact you at the nationalcouncil.org or they want to reach out to someone because they know someone who's in need or they themselves are. Yeah, so Larry, I think most importantly, if some, if you yourself are in need of treatment or support, Calling 988 is absolutely the right thing to do. If you want to find out how you can be better prepared to help people in your life, certainly I would encourage people to take a look at mental health first aid and to perhaps consider taking that course. It's just going to give you a five-step action plan that you could use uh, should you encounter somebody who's having a mental health crisis, much like CPR does. And you know, it gives you a peace of mind, both for yourself and for people that you're around. So, Larry, thank you so much for that question. Oh, absolutely. And thank you for the wonderful work of the National Council for Mental Well-Being. Again, if you want to look them up, it is nationalcouncil.org. And I thank you for your time and your expertise today, Chuck. Always a pleasure. 
Thank you so much for the opportunity, Larry, and uh, Happy New Year.